Welcome to A Random Walk with Ben Coleman. I'm here with my friend, Dave Eubank. I met him a couple months ago at a at an in-person engagement, uh, even amidst COVID, and immediately was taken by his story of heroism and faith. Um, Dave, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much, Ben. Love you. You're one of my heroes. You're flying <laughs> those fast jets, which would scare me, over our heads and saving lives. So thanks for doing that, man. That's cool. Of course. Well, and we are on location with you now. You are in Thailand, and we were just recounting your adventure. Why don't we start with that? Because it kind of gives a a, a glimpse into the things that you do in your life that are unique. But you're in Thailand right now, and what's been the experience as you traveled back there? Well, we our main work is Burma, which is also called Myanmar, right next to Thailand. And... That's been our work for over 25 years. We have 100 relief teams in that, in that area. It's a 70-year civil war. But our base is from Thailand. But when ISIS started their operations, we also started working in Iraq and then later Syria. So actually, last month, in the end of all of October, we were in Syria on a relief mission right after I saw you. Hmm. And uh, by God's help, able to do and be part of many good and loving things and also tragedies. Kids died right in our arms from the shelling from the Turks and the Free Syrian Army. And there's ISIS sleep cells, and we had all these things happening. But, but we were able to take part in loving more people in Syria and feeling that mutual love. But we needed to come back to Thailand because we have our work in Burma. And also, my girls are in college at Texas AM, and it was a Christmas break, and they grew up in Thailand. Two of my kids. Uh, one daughter, Suzanne, and my son, Peter, were born in Thailand. My daughter, Saheli, my oldest one, is born in America. So we all got ready to come back to Thailand. Well, Karen and I and Pete were going to come early. So we did our COVID test, and Karen was positive, but no symptoms. So we didn't know it was a real test or not a real test, but okay, you can't fly. So we spend 15 days. We're on someone's ranch. We're out kind of in the middle of nowhere, and no symptoms develop. Nothing happens. She comes back to retest negative. By then, the girls were through college. We all, re- we all test negative. We get on the plane land at a quarantine facility in Thailand, you have to quarantine 14 days, actually it turns out to be 16, the way it really works, mm-hmm. in a, a hotel, and there it has mat suits, you can't leave your room, all that. Well, and then you're tested again. So we were tested, we all negative, and then the second go round, almost at the end of quarantine, Karen tested what they said, unclear, and maybe slight positive, um, a trace of positive was what they said. I, we didn't know what that meant because she's totally well. And we said, well, maybe it's, if the positive a month ago was real, this is a residual, but obviously I can't trans, transmit it anymore. It's like a 14 day thing. Oh, no, no, no. It's our policy. You have to go to the hospital. So then to our shock, because my girls are you know, now two weeks into their Christmas break, we're transferred to the hospital, although we're all well, including my wife. And then we're segregated. The girls in one room, Pete and I in another room. And come here, Pete. And um, Karen, right here in this room, here's Pete. I'll say hello. Hey, Hi. Pete. Good to see you, brother. Good to see you, too. What do you have to say about well. the experience? We know it's God's plan, yet we would still like to be home at our house in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Absolutely. Well, Godspeed in your endurance. Thanks, brother. So we ended up in the hospital and praying like, hey, we're well, people. Why are we here? Well, there's these different mechanisms and policies that started getting on top of each other. And then, then they checked Karen again in the hospital and she's a negative. They drew her blood. She's a negative. Okay, now we can all go home. Oh, no. Because of that positive or possible positive, it trips into action national health policies. And now we're in the, a tangle and have to quarantine two more weeks, which is one month quarantine, although none of us, including Karen, are sick. And now she's just been cleared at negative. Wow. But- it's the rules and regulation. And that's all fear um, because that didn't make any sense. But thank God, as we have, you know, we tried, we came here, we're all extremely disappointed and upset and felt like I was in a science fiction movie. Like, <laughs> wait a minute, how can this happen to me? And, you know, we could fight. Like, we could easily fight our way out of this hospital. But then what? You'd have to yeah. get yourself to the border. We probably can do that. Then go into Burma. Then you live the rest of your life. Or what, you know, what's the thing? I'm more than happy to fight if that's what God wants for us. But none of us felt that. And, okay, Lord, is this your will or is this evil? 
whichever it is, you're going to bring good from it, whichever it is. So we praise you, but we don't feel like saying that and help yep. us be a witness of love to the people in the hospital. You can't even see them because they got hazmat suits, complete mask, face shield. You see their eyes. So I look in their eyes and I just say, we're followers of Jesus, not very good ones, but we believe in him. And God bless you to be safe, to not get COVID because you're in a, we're in the COVID ward now, even though we're healthy. So please pray for us. We don't get it. Um, that you don't get COVID. And then, and some of the, some of the nurses, I asked more about their lives and I don't have enough money. I had to come in as a cleaner. My husband has a back injury. So I was able to pray for her and her husband's healing and talking to doctors and praying with all of them at the end. And finally, yesterday, a guy from the CDC called, very kindly man. He said, basically, I'm summarizing. I'm not trying to put words in his mouth. So um, my dear friend, if you listen to this, this is my construction of what was said. <laughs> These policies hinder us from setting you free. Mm. And, but we're trying to find a way. That's a, that's a heart. And so I'm praying right now that in Jesus' name, his heart is softened. And, you know, as I thought about that, I, I read the Lord's Prayer. It's a great prayer because the disciples ask Jesus, how do you pray? And he gives the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, what we need. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As I prayed that prayer, I realized if God's going to forgive me of my sins, which are not maybe COVID related, I need to forgive this whole thing that just happened to us. That's the con. It doesn't say, oh, if your sin is this big and there's that big. No, 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 no. There's no math there. It's just that ask forgiveness from God, but he will not give it. Until you forgive others, it doesn't matter what they did. They killed your kid. They burned your house down. You got to forgive them unless you don't want to be forgiven. And I'll just tell you a little story of what happened in the middle of all this. We, um, we started getting questioned about our activities and all this. And I was, I was, I realized it's kind of like a trial now. And so I was very careful with my answers. And at the end of it, I thought, was I complete? I was, I was honest, but was, did I tell everything? Did I give them a misleading, you know, idea about some things? I know where this is all going. And I thought, I think I did. Why did I do that? Because I was afraid. Because I'm in a trap now. It's going to get worse. I said, isn't that the same thing as them? They're afraid of this disease, which I'm not very much of. I mean, it's real. It kills people. It's terrible. We should fight it with all our mights. But it's to me, it's like a less than 1% chance to die. And there's a lot of other ways to die. I've lost many friends. And right now, all my friends are really sick. And some have already dead or dying of cancer mm -hmm. and other things. So, yes, it's a serious disease we have to take seriously. But it's not the only thing. And it's not something to flip our lives around. It's, it should be approached like everything. Yeah. Well, but you other, mentioned. Yeah. Other people don't have that look, that view. And they get scared. And they add things. And they add things. They have unintended consequences. So I said. Lord, forgive me of not being totally straight um, out of fear, as I forgive them of not being straight out of fear. So we both are the same. We can say I'm better than you, but man, we are both, we're both sinners. I can't handle their sin. That's between them and God, but I can handle mine. So I said, Lord, forgive me. And if, if they want to call me back for any clarification and lay everything out, you'll leave me what to say. You don't just throw information out to people who don't care, right? You don't just babble, you, but you... God will leave us what to say, and please forgive me. And I felt forgiven, and I forgave them. That's a miracle. This yeah. is terrible. But I think I want to say that to get back to COVID. Um, this is something that we need to pray as a nation, as a world, but we're Americans, that we pray for the appropriate response to COVID. I think everyone would agree to those words, appropriate response. Right now, we all have a different definition of appropriate response. But I pray that God gives people on both spectrums the wisdom to what is an appropriate response. That's my prayer. And because neither side is better than the other. Now, one side may be more right than the other. Like it, at some point in time, people thought the world was flat. That wasn't right. But it's not really worth fighting about. And, and so you keep praying that it's revealed the world is actually round. So I don't know the answer to the, the policies and, and actions we as Americans who take about COVID, for example. 
but I know God knows. And when we inquire of him, he'll tell us. And although we may not agree or do everything the same, there will be a harmony in our answer. And that's the freedom we people have. So I've learned from this experience right now, absolute humility again, because I have no power. Um, and I've learned of my own sins. You know, I, I have a lot of things I think that aren't right. Well, man, they're out. They're gone. I don't want to think those again. I know when I get out of here, it'll be tempting again. But I really had a chance to examine my own sins and ask God to forgive me and take out um, patterns that are, that are evil themselves. So evil all come from Satan. And it, and it has little lines that go through us. And we look at other people, oh, they're worse, you know, they're worse than us. Well, it's the same root. Even if they are worse than you, they're ISIS and we're not. Yeah, that is worse. But it's the same root. You don't want part of that. You don't want one touch of it. So Jesus takes that away from us. And I thank God for him. And I thank God that our souls cannot be touched when we put them in his hands. And I thank God that no one can take your future away. They can hammer you in the present. They can't take your future away. So um, anyways, thanks for letting me share that. And right now we're praying God's will. We'd be loving to everyone. Um, we keep being cleaned out ourselves and we get out in two days. That's my prayer in Jesus name. But thanks for Absolutely. listening. Well, we're, we're praying for you as well in that regard. And what strikes me, and you know, we were at, had the, the pre-recording conversation, you mentioned this is one of the hardest things you've ever done or gone through, which is remarkable given the things that you've done in your life. And uh, in particular, running the Free Burma Rangers, which I want to talk about next, and some of the, the things that you've done to save people, but also the environments you found yourself in. So as we, as we move into that part of the conversation, can you just give us an understanding of what the Free Burma Rangers is and what you do outside of maybe this, this current quarantine in Thailand to affect change in the world? Because it's a powerful story that I want people to hear about. The Free Burma Rangers is a humanitarian relief organization that gives help, mostly that's medical, but other kind of humanitarian help, hope, you know, you're not forgotten, we care about you, God cares about you, and love. You count, and we love you, and God loves you, and other people around the world love you. And even if we have no medicine left, no blankets, we're going to stand with you. If you can't run, we're not going to run. And then getting the news out, putting a light on what's happening. So that's the mission of the Freedom Rangers, help, hope, and love, and putting a light on the situation. You can be any or no religion to be a ranger. And we have men and women, and we have atheists, agnostics, Christians, Buddhists, and Muslims, uh, spirit worshipers, Yazidis, which is another religion, Zoroastrians, Baha'i. We got the whole thing. And you just have to do, to be a ranger, you have to do three things. One, you have to do this for love because there's, the teams are not paid. Do this for love. Number two, you have to be able to read and write in some kind of language because you can't do reporting or good medicine without some kind of literacy. And then number three, you cannot run if people can't run. Now, our job is not to go attack anyone. We're not a militia. We're not a paramilitary force. But you can't run if people can't run. Now, if, if you're with them and now you're attacked and they're going to die and you're going to die, it's up to you. You can pick up a weapon and fight back at that point. That's between you and God. That's not our policy. We don't have a policy. I, my own personal policy is, Jesus, what do you want me to do now? And on some missions, we have no weapons at all and because we can't find them normally because we're not pacifists. Um, I like having a gun around, <laughs> but I don't depend on it. And I don't need to have it. I need to go where God sends me. And I've done many missions in combat areas, got shot at with no weapons. But other times, like in the Battle of Mosul, we were, the whole team was on. You know, even my kids, my, my daughter was 16 then, 16 and 14. They were driving armored ambulances, not into the fighting, but very close to it to get wounded out because there wasn't enough people to move. Like the Rocky Army was so decimated by then, there was one medic in the entire brigade in the front line. Now, they had a casualty collection point with doctors, but at the front with the troops, one medic for three battalions. He was in he was in first battalion. So the other two didn't have any. So our teams um, went in and to help. I'm going to pause right a second. Oh, sorry, cop. Maban. This is the housekeeper. Amen. So, you, so where were we? No, you just you're explaining the the Free Burma Rangers and kind of the mission, and I think okay. I think you've alluded to it, but you all go into very challenging situations, um, combat zones, uh, places that most Americans would never imagine going. Maybe you could bring kind of one of the stories to light, and you know the, the one that 
I don't want to say you may be most famous for, but the one that, you know, has kind of captured the world's imagination is this picture of you holding a young Iraqi girl kind of in the middle of combat zone. Can you walk us through that story of what was happening at that mm-hmm. moment and what that situation was where you were in the middle of a firefight and you saw a young girl who needed saving and you took action. Can you walk us through that experience? Yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll back up one step. So we, these are the Freedom Rangers and we've got now have a hundred, we've been around for 27 years in a way, but the name's only been around about 23, 24 and starting in Burma with now 100 relief teams in all the major ethnic areas in, in the fighting areas, because Burma's the longest running civil war. But then in 2014, when ISIS started their attacks in Syria and Iraq, we, we knew it was happening, but we thought it had nothing to do with us, except we didn't like it and we prayed. But what would we do? We're jungle people. And our, our guys in Burma, some of them don't even have passports. Plus, what could we add to that situation? But in January 2015, we were in, on a mission in Burma. And we had the Burma Army around us. We're helping some people. It taken us 19 days to get through the Burma Army lines to where we were. It would take 19 days at least to get back if they didn't ambush us. And by now it was February. Because we actually, that 19 days on top of another month of walking way up in northern Burma. And we're getting ready to think, how are we going to penetrate back through and make it shorter? When we got the news, you can't because now they're throwing three battalions to block you. Okay, we're not going that way. We're going to turn and go back the way we came because we kind of finished our mission. We've been giving relief to different displaced and oppressed villages. And then we communicate with a, with a laptop like this with a, um, a BGAN satellite transceiver. And I, I send my emails out. You don't surf the wet net. You, know, you send shot out, shot in. And I get this message from a friend of mine named Victor Marks. He's a Christian um minister runs something called all things possible he's also the u.s um heavyweight karate champion the fastest disarmer in the world check him out victor marks victor marks Stud. okay yeah. funny guy uh, he's an old friend so he, he sends me his email dave can you come to kurdistan iraq in seven days i want you to be with me we're meeting the leadership and see how we can help the kurdish people under attack by isis i think fbr could be of assistance because you guys are in war zones for over 20 years. You don't have any safety rules. You go where other NGOs won't go and you trust in God. Bring your great medics and come on. Because he had been to Burma before in our training camp and seen what our medics, our medics are like ER docs, except without a lot of equipment. They're amazing. They have my chief medic has 30 years of combat medicine experience. He was trained by the French, by MSF, Renaissance Saint Frontier, Dr. Bob Waters, and AMI. So he's top line. A healthcare provider, bring them, leader in seven days. I'm like, seven days. So I say, you know, only God can do this. And I type it out and we all pray as a team and say, okay, that's easy. Yeah, of course we'll go if God opens the door. The next day, those three army battalions, the Burma army, leave their blocking position in front of us and start to chase us on our old route, which opens the way for us to go. And we have to cover about 80 miles in three days on foot, up and down mountains, day and night. And the kids were I think Pete was maybe nine or 10, but he's carrying, at that point, he's carrying a 50 pound rucksack and he probably weighed 50 pounds. It's a true story. He's the youngest kid to climb Mount Rainier. He's the youngest kid at six to climb the Grand Teton. You're not, you're not, you know, not guided. I was, he was right behind me and he's a real stud. He's broke both his arms riding bulls and steers. He's won multiple buckles. When he was, when he was eight, he beat the 19 year olds in steer ride and bull ride. So he, he's a little stud, but anyways, the girls are a little bigger. They're carrying, we're all carrying our loads. In three days, we get to a border that usually is also hard to cross. We cross it easily. And on the way to the next border, we have a car crash because our driver falls asleep because we're just going constantly. And the car's flipped on its side. We all are okay. We get out and he says, get out of here because if we're caught with foreigners here, we're all going to get in trouble. Don't worry about a wrecked car. I was trying to get my, don't worry about it. I'm going to go to jail. I'm out of here. You're out of here. And we get picked up by a bus in an area that should be no foreigners. And they said nothing. They said nothing. And we drove in, you know, blonde kids, backpacks. Where did you come from? Obviously, where we came from. 
or maybe, but they didn't say anything. And we, the long story short, we made it back uh, to Thailand. And then within seven days, Pete and I landed. From the time of that email, seven days later, we landed in Erbil, Kurdistan, northern Iraq. And we met with Victor and the Minister of Defense for the Peshmerga, the Kurdish forces, who were under great pressure from ISIS. And he looked at Pete and said, you brought your son? Because I didn't bring the girls and Karen because they actually had pre-commitments before. And this is just a recon. So I brought Pete and said, you brought your son, your most precious thing. I give you my country, my most precious thing. I know you're real. Go wherever you want to go. Later, when I met a Kurdish general at the end of our meeting, I said, can we pray? And he goes, pray? You know, Americans believe in God? I said, yeah. And he goes, thank you, pray. And I felt God tell me, get on your knees. I was like, get on my knees. I look like a Christian nutcase. But I felt God say, you're afraid of me or them? So I got on my knees and I said, just in English, I prayed for God's blessing to them. I prayed a prayer I felt God taught me. God, please stop ISIS, set, set the courage free, and help the hearts of enemies to change love. When I got up, he said, we don't know what you said, but we know you fear God like we do. Go wherever you want in my country. So we started out um, 2015 and 16, bringing our teams over, my family, with at the front lines with the Kurds at Bashika and at Sinjar Mountain where the Yazidis were trapped by ISIS. My family would be up in tents doing kid programs, doing medical programs. My daughters can do a little dentistry because they've been taught and they can do drill and fill and also assist. And my wife does kid programs and Pete helps out. And we have all these, we have about 20 guys from Burma and other volunteers from America, medics and others and videographers because we want to help people and tell the story. Well, we did this for two years until ISIS was defeated at Sinjar and Bashika. And then it came down to November, 2016. And the month before that, October, 2016, was the beginning of the assault on Mosul, led by the Iraqi army. Well, it pretty much coincided with the defeat of ISIS uh, in Kurdistan. So then ISIS was defeated in Kurdistan. Do we have a job anymore? And we don't know anybody in the Iraqi army. Should we go there? And we prayed and we said, God, we don't want to just go to action because we like action because we do like action. But we want to go where you want us to go. We'll go back to our Burma missions, unless you want that to change. We said that prayer. One hour later, I get a phone call from a friend in Nobile, runs a big NGO. Dave, we've got millions of dollars of food. We can't get to the front line because it violates our safety protocols. Will you deliver it in our name? Yeah, I'll deliver it in your name. Follow all your reporting protocols and sequences. Give you all the credit. Awesome. He said, this is your, this is the name of the unit you need to find. We don't know where they are in Eastern Mosul. Okay, so we prayed, got the food, drove in, ran very close to ISIS. They fired us up. We didn't even know they're there. We didn't, we barely knew where we were and got to the Iraqis. And the Iraqi general Mustafa said, who sent you? I said, God sent me. And he said, well, I prayed to God that someone would save us from ISIS. And look what he just sent. The very worst two things in the world, an American Christian. And... <laughs> And we became though very close friends. And then my family came and he said, wow, you must think that Iraqis and Americans are equal value because our families are here too, under attack. And you brought your kids? And I said, yeah. And my kids and my wife aren't at the front line kicking doors and shooting, but they're right back wherever a family is. So a family's breaking free, they're driving an ambulance full of white women and kids, helping whatever they can. And then my medics and I are in the front. So we went through the Battle of Mosul, first East Mosul, where 30 of my friends were killed. By now, I have good Iraqi friends with the Iraqi army. And it was tragic. And it's actually hard for me to talk about it without crying. Yeah. Um, and we ourselves engaged ISIS by then. We had them attack us and we fought back. And I mean, I'm talking close, like two yards. And we went through Eastern Mosul. And by the time we went through Eastern Mosul, it was liberated with the help of these various NGOs who had, had the supplies. It was a great partnership. They had supplies, we had the access. And we were able to, to feed by then about 30,000 people and treat about 2,000 wounded and soldiers and civilians and ISIS, ISIS families. So then we moved to Western Mosul and that became even a more intense battle because that was the, the last stronghold of ISIS. And at that point then they began to kill their own families to not let them get away. They said better to die and fall in the hands of the infidels. So this got bloodier and bloodier and bloodier. By then, I've been wounded four times. I've shot in the arm and um, three different grenade incidences, drone strike, actually all pretty minor. 
I was really fortunate, just blood and scratches and some little holes, but nothing, nothing major. So, but, and then we'd also fought ISIS very close ourselves yeah. as we're trying to do our, our release job and they just come. And I mean, at our casualty collection point, which is well off the front line where my family was helping civilians, we got attacked right there. Guys running over the roof shooting and, you know, get the kids and wife inside and most in the most strong room, my girls have AKs and they can use them and Pete too. And they're there at the door <laughs> comes in, but it didn't get that bad. Anyway, this went on and on. And finally on, on June the 1st, we were by now all the way to the northernmost bridge over the, over the Tigris River in Mosul on the west side at a place called Shifa Hospital and Zinjali district. And when, and this is right next to a place called Hawi Kanisa, which means the place of the churches, but the churches are long gone. All the Christians killed or ran away when ISIS came and the churches destroyed. And it's near the place too, just on the other side of the river where Jonah's tomb is and ISIS also destroyed Jonah's tomb. Hmm. But now we're back on the west side, closing in on the northernmost bridge, working our way south as other elements of the Iraqi military are working their way north and from the west to the east. So you've got ISIS pinned between the Tigris, Tigris River and the Iraqi forces all around them. We're the northern portions. We took more and more casualties as ISIS became more and more fanatical and determined. And we ran into their strong points. Shifa Hospital, <coughs> excuse me, Shifa Hospital had also Chechens in it. And they had ZSU-23 anti-aircraft guns in ground plane mode on elevators, go up and down and shoot. And that'll go through armored vehicles. They had heavy machine guns, mortars, anti-tank, uh, cornets, which is a, like a tow missile, take out any tank, and many other weapons and troops everywhere. And we tried to get across this highway next to the hospital. Couldn't do it. Many casualties. And we were running out trying to save them. Some we saved, some we couldn't. By June the 1st, we began to see not just soldiers getting shot and a few civilians. We saw a stream of civilians running towards us near that hospital, just around the corner, carrying dead and wounded. What's happening? So they're killing families, they're killing families. This one dad came to me just crying. He said, they just killed my two daughters and I'm holding their hand and running. They shot them both in the head behind me. They missed me. And babies, baby, 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 baby. He's crying. So this is not. It's hard to talk about it because we saw all this. I mean, it wasn't the first time. We saw it many times. And to be a father myself with three kids and have a father have his kids shot next to him. My God, what did I do? Wow. Absolutely. Can you describe them? The clothes they're wearing. So we said, okay, we'll help. We prayed with them, try to comfort him, and more and more. And so we went, but time, and there was many wounded. One little girl I picked up, and my arm was soaked in blood, and she died. As I picked her up and moved her to our, our ambulance, my daughter was driving, she died right there. Hmm. Many other shot. And, um, so by just before dark, the stream of civilians slowed so we could move and we went to where are they coming from? To the, was really the front line, which wasn't very far away, another cross street. And we looked out and we just saw what looked like a bunch of rags and people crawling across. All night long, we treated people crawling across on June 1st, across this road. And, you, and there was shooting uh, and, and heavy mortars, artillery, and um, not artillery, heavy mortars, machine guns, um, anti-aircraft and anti-tank systems going down that road all night. No, you couldn't cross it. And a few civilians who did got shot and a few survived and crawled over to us. All night long, we were awake pretty much, um, taking care of wounded. The next day, we kind of got up to the corner and looked around the corner and bullets come right away. And so we kind of had to find another way to hide between the rubble and see, man, that's a lot of garbage on that street. Oh, that's not garbage, that's people. <laughs> and I say, hey man, I see 12 people dead. I see a woman laying down her arms outstretched, shot in the back of the head. In front of her is a baby in swaddling clothes, maybe three weeks old, shot in the head. I see four wheelchairs, people slumped over, shot. And I see the people who are pushing me flipped over and shot. And then I start counting 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, more people dead. Wow, this is a massacre. And there's a private, a Rocky private in Zuhair says, we gotta save these people. I said, how can you do it? If you get on the, even an armored vehicle can get on the street, because from us, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. So all these dead people, but then up against the wall, which it was at a certain angle to the main ISIS position, it was, there was the hospital to the east, 
and then to the south was a Pepsi or soft drink factory, pretty damaged. And there was a, and then there was our street between us and them, and there was this little wall, and we saw movement, and there were seven children left alive, seven, mm. wandering around. Some of the kids were like looked like two years old, you know, no pants on, just a raggedy shirt, blood all over them, not from their blood, but from probably their parents, and they're walking around trying to wake their parents up, and then pow, they get shot. Very quickly, there was only one kid left. And she was a girl with pigtails and a red shirt hiding under her dead mother. We found it later than three days later, three days. We didn't even know that. We're back there just treating the flood of people getting shot. And hiding her dead mother, because she stayed under her dead mother, ISIS couldn't see her. And she survived, the only kid. And then we looked and we saw two men alive. And they were also hiding among the dead, but they were badly shot, covered in blood. I don't know how they're still alive, but they were there. One guy waved his hand weakly, like, help me. So I thought, oh my gosh, how can we do this? And Zuhair, the Iraqi prophet, we got to go help him. I'll die. I said, you'll just die. Jesus, give us a plan. And I called my chaplain, Paul Bradley, back in Thailand on, on my phone. Hey, pray for us. We need a solution. My daughter came up because she's, you know, still working that from the back to the front. We prayed together and got my team and we prayed. And I went to the Iraqi army and I said, look, I'm going to ask the American. I had a very good relationship with the American military, General Scott Eflant, amazing hero, armored uh, commander, but in charge of the Battle of Mosul at that point. And I said, uh, Scott, sir, can you give us smoke? We just need smoke. And he said, yeah, let's coordinate through the Iraqi army so we do it right. So I ran back to the Iraqi army, had them call the Americans. They didn't. Had the Americans call them. Then I called. And we, and we just got this thing going where the Americans would get smoke. And this is very brave of, of an American general. I'm a civilian. I, mean, I was in special forces. I was a ranger officer as well, but I'm a civilian now. But on my unsecure iPhone, I'm giving all the coordinates and the salute report and the azimuth from me to the target and the description and all that. And the Iraqi army said, no, no way. We cannot risk a tank. I know the kid, there's a kid there, I believe you, but there's a lot of kids in the city. And if we lose our tank here, you're gonna help anybody. Mm -hmm. And I kept praying. Finally, 4.30 in the afternoon. It started at six in the morning, 4.30 in the afternoon. That kid's still alive. What are we gonna do? It turns the night. She may not make the night. Plus, ISIS can move up. And, and at night, you can't even move. Not only ISIS shoots you, everybody's shooting at night. You don't cross anything. So we need to do it now. So I just talked to Scott, General Eflon. I said, please, can you start dropping smoke now? Just do it. He goes, okay. They dropped 93 rounds of smoke from 155 smoke canisters. Dead on. And I got that rocket commander left. And second command was there, Colonel Mohammed. I said, Colonel Mohammed, please come and look. And we had to dodge bullets. You can't dodge bullets. We had to move as they're shooting, you know, kind of guess where they are and get to where we could see better. And he sucked his head out and he saw the smoke. He said, no way. And I said, Colonel Muhammad, if Allah told you to um, give, us a, give us a tank, I wanted a tank, a bulldozer, and Humvees, our Humvees. Tank goes in the front and blasted ISIS. The bulldozer goes behind, clears away. The Humvees drive. We go up. We pull them out. It's over in like five minutes. And we got armor the whole way. That's my plan. I, I described him. I said, if Allah tells you to help us, will you do it? He said, you mean Allah? I said, yeah, Allah. He goes, yes, of course, I'll do whatever Allah says. I said, good. I held his hand. I said, please, let's pray. I said, Allah, please tell Colonel Muhammad what to do in Yeshua's name, Nisa's name, in Jesus' name. I mean, he opens his eyes and said, what did Allah tell you? He said, one tank. <laughs> That's it. Take it or leave it. You're not getting the bulldozer. You're not getting the Humvees. One tank. You have to run behind the tank. Take it or leave it. I said, I'll take it. I turned to my man and said, who wants to go? Who wants to volunteer? And Monkey, one of my video men, turns to Zhao Sang, another video guy, goes, he goes. And Zhao Sang goes, that is not meeting a volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> so Monkey goes, okay, I'm the senior, senior guy. I'll go. So it was myself, one, an ex-Marine named Sky, who's um, been on our team for a year an ex-seal named Ephraim, who is just a part-time volunteer only with us two months and is not serving with us now, but great guy. Mm -hmm. And a Syrian refugee named Mahmoud, who became a translator after one of my translators, my very close friend, Shaheen, was killed right next to me earlier in the battle. And then Monkey to film it, because we always show what's happening. We always want to put a light, especially in places in the world people don't know about. And we put a light on things because we want people to know what's happening. What they do is up to them. We want the enemy to see what they're doing. And more importantly, we want the people in the, in the, on camera to know they count. Their story counts no matter what happens. So mm -hmm. monkey's going through. We get out. We say the Lord's Prayer. We're terrified. 
We follow the tank. The tank starts taking rounds. I should shoot mortars, RPG, machine guns at us. And we're running behind the tank. And it felt like when you go over the top of a roller coaster, and then that's scary, right? You should drop down. Right. But imagine you had control to just release the car you're sitting in. That's what we had to do, release that car and just mm-hmm. fly through the air like a, like a bad dream. And we follow this tank, rounds everywhere. And we're going over the dead bodies. And the tank is maneuvering not to crush the dead bodies. And the Iraqis are amazing. Wow. The love they had and the respect even for the dead. They risk, you know, showing their weaker side of the tank to not crush these, these kids. And I ran by the two girls, the man the day before described. Skinny jeans, flowered shirt, another girl, certain way, little lunch pail. And I saw them both shot in the head. I thought, that's his kids. And the tank didn't run over them. Weed right around them. Over 50 bodies scattered all over the streets. We're taking fire. The tank shooting its main gun and coax back. Boom, boom, boom. We get up to the corner. We can see Demoa. The little girl's still alive. The two men are still alive. The smoke is dissipating. And I just wanted to get over with it. Just run out there and get them. I was so scared and so like just hateful of this experience. But I knew, wait, wait. Call in more smoke. The American military responded immediately. More smoke. And then I said, this is the time. And I turned to Sky in an effort and I said, Jesus, help us. And I ran out. And it was only maybe 15 yards. As I ran, Sky and Ephraim stepped out from behind the tank, which is very brave, into the fire, just put their AK fire right into the ISIS. There were so many positions. They just shot wherever they could shoot right in front of us into ISIS and risked their lives. And I got the girl. When I tried to get off her mother, she wouldn't let go of her mother. I said, yank her off her mother. And when I did that, there was rounds coming in. I don't know if I just slipped or a round hit because I was on this kind of loose rubble, whatever. I hit the ground hard, but I would not let her go. And I, I remember I slammed her into the ground, not letting her go and say, I'm sorry, little girl, but I'm not going to let you go. Picked her up, got back, and the sound came on my, me like, oh. And Ephraim said, are you okay? I said, yeah. The sound was one of real fear and relief. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm alive. We're alive. I can't believe it. There's still two guys there. This isn't just a little girl rescue. So I give the girl to my mood. I pray again. I said, Sky, give me your weapon. You're not going to need it. Put it down. And I, didn't, I wasn't carrying a, a rifle because there's no way I could do it and help anybody. I had a pistol. And there's no way we're going to fight our way out of this anyways. Jesus, help us. And Sky and I ran to get the, one of the men. And I realized it's faster if we get them both at the same time. I said, Ephraim, come and help us. So he stopped shooting, ran. Ephraim got one guy. Well, Sky got one guy and brought him back. Ephraim and I got the other guy back. We got him back behind the tank. The tank is now backing up shooting we're taking more rounds and um Ephraim gets shot through the leg we lose one of the guys we're trying to help he's out in the open he's killed and now we're still um Ephraim is limping shot right through the calf and putting a tourniquet on Sky and Mahmoud are driving the other man and I've got the little girl back and I'm just praying for them and I remember just saying if you no one adopts you because all our family's dead right there mm-hmm. I'll take it I mean I just make that promise to you. And I kept running. We get back about 150 yards. The tank is, is, is shooting as it backs up. And we have no combo with the tank. So it's just, but it, <laughs> Colonel Mahmoud is watching from a distance. He's talking to the tank, kind of telling him where we are at. We get back to the intersection and I start yelling for Humvees because there's a whole line of Humvees there, but they don't move. They're not mine anyways. But we do, we have a Humvee that was given us by the Rocky Army. Pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And a good journalist, a journalist, um, Bernard was standing there. He's an old friend, been with us in Burma. And I, he said, Dave, the day before, he said, Dave, teach me how to drive this Humvee. Um, it might become useful one day. I said, it's real easy. <laughs> and he just got there. He'd been with us for years in Burma, but he just came to the Battle of Mosul a day or two before this event. And so he knew how to drive the Humvee the day before this. And he saw what was happening. And none of our team was in our Humvee because they were watching from another position in case they had to run out and grab us earlier. And he ran, jumped in the Humvee and drove it. And rounds are hitting the Humvee. He gets to us. We load everybody in and we get out. And we, I say, wow, thank God. I call my wife. My, my daughter jumps in the vehicle with me. She says, Haley, she's back in a building filming. And she jumps in and starts giving water. This little girl drank six bottles of water on the way to the casualty collection point. Wow. I call my wife and said, honey, this little girl is going to need a kid. My wife's usually at a casualty collection point, helping civilians wounded when they come in. So I get the cash collection point. I hand the, the girl to the doctors because you don't know if she's been shot. It looks like she hasn't. They put two IVs in her, start running, actually one IV, start running fluids in her, more water, snacks. And when that's done, 
they put her in my wife's arms and she just falls asleep. Maybe for the first time in my wife's arms. My wife just rocks her as a mother would. And then I look at Ephraim. He's, he's actually fine, shot through the calf, through and through. He's going to be okay. And I pray for him and I just say, Ephraim, you're a hero, man. Thanks for being with us and helping us. And give yourself to Jesus all the way, man. <laughs> um, the other man that we got out was wounded. Uh, he was wounded multiple times, but he was going to make it. And we sent Ephraim off to another hospital in Rabiel. And the, the, the clinic said, you know this girl, Emily? Can you take her? Yeah, I made that promise. So we took her back to the Iraqi um, position that we're at, a little rear position, basically these abandoned houses. But before that, um, when we're getting ready to do that, I saw a, a secret police kind of group come into the hospital that wasn't related to anything we'd done, take the man we just rescued, yank the IVs out of him, and drag him out in the street bleeding. They're going to execute him. They said he's ISIS. I said, I don't think he's ISIS. They just shot him, and he's with his family. Oh, but he was part of ISIS. How do you know that? I said, at least let him finish his hospital thing and put him on trial. Mm. You can't execute him right now. And I said, I'm not challenging your authority. I'm just, I'm an American. I'm not an Iraqi. I'm not even in the army. Don't worry. I'm not fighting you. I'm not challenging you. But I just risked my life and my team's life. And one of my guys was wounded saving this guy. There's no way. And I just put my arms around him and held him. And I wouldn't let go. And I began to cry. Not like, I don't think I see it. You know, tears came to my eyes because I thought, okay, I will die with this guy. There's no way. And I felt like a tree hugger, you know, <laughs> except I was like a person. And they stopped. And then the doctors came out and the doctors were afraid of the secret police. I could see that. And I called the generals and they were afraid of the secret police. Mm -hmm. But I said, we're not challenging you, but please let him get treatment first. And then, so they let him go and went back in the hospital. I was like, I don't know what happened to him after that, but I just prayed that he got away. Yeah. Um, he's done with well, If he ever was an ISIS, he's done. He's, right. he barely can, you know, I don't know if he'll walk again. So, and we all need mercy. So, I mean, we all also need a fair hearing. Maybe he wasn't. He was a prisoner. We don't know. And all I know is they shot. So then he was put back. We went back. And then General Mustafa came to the area we were staying. And the little girl, and he just came in. The same general that had welcomed us at the beginning. And he just took the girls in his arms and just started crying and crying and crying. And she didn't cry. He was crying and crying for her. I started crying. Um, Major Nassim, the chief medical officer of the 36th Brigade, starts crying. We just cried for her. And then we put her back in Karen's arms. And he said, I'll find her family. And if not, I will adopt her. Hmm. And at you know, the, the end of that story is that General Mustafa found the grandmother down near Baghdad and the grand and then brought her up and gave the gave Demoa. This little girl's name is Demoa, which means tear. Gave hmm. Demoa to General Mus to the grandmother. And the grandmother said, you know, I found this all out later, but I found out that on June the second, the day you rescued my daughter, I had a vision. And my daughter. I'm sorry, my granddaughter. You rescued my granddaughter. Um, my granddaughter, I saw my granddaughter hiding under my daughter's body. And I saw all these bodies. I didn't know where it was. I was in Baghdad. I assumed it was Mosul. I didn't know it was real or what. It's just a vision. And there was a, a stream, a putrid evil stream that separated my granddaughter from life. And a man shining in white, huge, stepped across that stream and rescued my daughter. I said, that was Jesus. That was Jesus. He sent us. You know, God intervenes in, the, in this world through people. He can intervene other ways too, but through people. When we decide we're going to obey him and, and do something. That was Jesus. Jesus. Okay. And we pray together. And then Demo went back. We've seen Demoa since. And we give her help. And she's part of our, she's not really part of our family, but she's part of our love. And she has a grandmother and an aunt. So that's, that's that story. The Battle of Mosul went on after that. We had more, two more rescues to do that were, to me, at least one of them, even scarier. But God sent <laughs> them and helped us, in spite of ourselves, in spite of the enemy, be part of something good. And none of it was possible without God's help, without the Americans' courage of American General Scott Efron to send in the smoke, without the Iraqis risking their tanks and their men without people around the world praying for us, without our team in support and our team in action doing it. It was all together a big team effort of love. And I'm grateful. I mean, that's just 
an astounding story, Dave, and the, the heroism and courage and faith it takes to do that. I mean, I'm just, I'm awestruck um, by that right now. And I guess the question comes is, is why, why, why do you do this? Like, what is the thing that, that gets you up in the morning that says, I have to do this and I want to, to help these people? I think for me, it, it's four things. It's where I feel God has us. That's a spiritual reason. Mm-hmm. It, I feel a love for these people and they love me. That's an emotional reason. I feel oppression is wrong. Evil is wrong. You have to stand against it the best you can. That's intellectual. And then physically, I like action. I like running around. <laughs> um, and and if, I, if I can keep it the spiritual first, the, the heart and mind, and then the body last, then it's the right order. And sometimes I get it all wrong and then I make big mistakes or small ones, whatever, they're mistakes. And, but that's why I do it because God has called us to do it, enables to do it because I love doing it because I love these people and because it's the right thing to do and because we can. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned your kids a number of times and I have three kids under five myself and the hardest decision we have to make is, you know, what school to send them to in Dallas. And we fret over this decision and, you know, it, it gives us stress and, and yet your children have experienced a very different life than most American kids. Can you walk us through the choice and decision y'all made to bring them along on this journey starting X number of years ago and what they've seen that has shaped their experience to give them a different perspective. And I'm thinking your daughters who are at AM right now, what is that like for them to be on an American college campus having spent their first two decades on a global scale in the middle of the most chaotic situations? Well, they're in the room next door. Unfortunately, they can't <laughs> answer. Uh, I'll just answer that one first. Yeah. They found college to be really academically demanding. Hmm. One's pre-vet, one's nursing. They're taking calculus and chemistry and they've never taken those right interest in them and they found school really hard they're going to Texas A&M right now mm-hmm. and they that's been very humbling they were actually very humble girls but that's been like well dad you know this is hard some people it's not hard it's hard for us so that's the first thing the second thing they found is they love the atmosphere where, where they're at Texas A&M there's so many believers there there's this Tuesday night um, prayer service and called break breakaway and a breakout something like 10,000 kids go every night. Even now they have to wear their mask on. They're all singing praises to God. Mm-hmm. Wow. What kind of school is this? It's a state school. It's all voluntary. And they have all these little groups they pray with. And they said, wow, that is a lot of believers here. That's really neat. And they enjoy some of their classes, not all of them. <laughs> and learn new, new and new perspectives and get to defend like in Sahelian sociology class. When the, when the professor talks about Syria or Burma, he's never been there. Yeah. When he talks about, you know, people are this way or that way, she can say, well, that's your perspective. Here's mine, which is mm-hmm. different. And it's challenged her to, to be very careful how she speaks and talks. But um, in Suzanne's final exam on geography, it focused on Southeast Asia. Well, she was born in Thailand and grew up in Burma and that's what yeah. He knows who the Kachen are and who the Shan are and who the Chen are yep. and where the opium's grown and all that. So that was good. I think the highlight for them is being on the polo team. And they're just freshmen. So they're not on the first, the first team, but they're playing and they're really good riders. They're just learning polo. But another blessing is we have friends live off campus. And this husband and wife that were national champions for AM years before, and they have horses. So they get the practice not only at practice but at this um family's ranch the greenwoods so that's just that that's just like they're like daddy god has blessed us so much we're on the polo team we're um get to ride horses and we get to ride horses as much as we did in thailand and burma we have horses in both places because we use them for our work yep so it's been a blessing for them and they just got their finals done last week they passed all their classes and they're really glad. Yes. <laughs> and they can move on to the next one. Um, so it's been, but you know, and, and when, when you ask them, where do you want to live in the future? I think we want to be back. in the future. We yeah. love this time in America. We'll always be Americans. We love being in Vermont 
or the Middle East, wherever we, we can work, we want to work back there. For Peter, hey, Peter, come here real quick. What's it been like growing up on all these missions? Take my place real quick and, and tell Uncle Ben. Well, I'm actually really grateful for the experience of being in Burma, Iraq, and Syria. I feel like not a whole lot of kids have been in those situations, and I really enjoy it because it's my home. Yeah. Well, to hike 80 miles in three days with a 50-pound pack as a 10- or 11-year-old is a pretty remarkable feat. Um, and you, with the smile on your face, the, the multiple times I've seen you, I, I can't even imagine that upbringing, but you are going to be an incredible young man moving forward. You already are. So thank you for the service that you provide for those people that you're helping out. Um, I'm just in awe of what you all do. So thank you. So much. Thank you for interviewing us. No, of course, of course. Well, so I want to hear a little bit more about Burma. You know, it's called the Free Burma Rangers. Um, and I don't think many Americans, myself included, understand what's happening in Burma and why that might be the focus of y'all's attention. Can you give us a brief history of the region and why this is the focus area of your, of your mission and your work? So Burma has been in conflict for 70 years of civil war, or at least the Karen State region. And my dad grew up in Thailand and in Burma going through different countries. And also when my dad was in the military, when he got out, there was a tribal leader that reached out to my grandfather or my dad's dad and asked, hey, we need Christian warriors and we need people to come and help us here in the conflict. And so my grandfather called my dad and he came back to Thailand and then we just started, or I didn't start the meeting because I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> <laughs> my dad started the FBR with few, with a few villagers that decided to join because they wanted to help their people who were being attacked and displaced by the local, the central government. So your dad told us about the experience in Mosul, but what's what's the day-to-day -day life like serving the people of Burma? Give us a sense of, of what happens um, in the daily activities. So if it's a moving day, we'll wake up usually around 4 or 3.30, me and my sisters, and we'll get all the horses ready for the horse and mule teams because besides porters that will carry our loads for us, we have no other way of transporting loads because there's only trails. And so we'll load up the horses and then walk about 5 to 8 hours or 12 hours a day. And when we get to the next village, we'll put up a campsite near a stream or a creek because that's probably the, that's the best place to take a bath is in a creek because there are no showers mm -hmm. or baths anyway. And then the next day, if we plan on doing a kids program there, we'll set up our GLC or we'll set up tarp for all the medical staff who will sit down and they'll have all the villagers that have medical needs come and they'll treat them accordingly. And then we'll do a kids program where we'll sing songs, play games, share about God's love. And then if I'm not doing that, I'm doing homeschool because I'm currently in ninth grade. Wow. And how many languages do you speak, Peter? I can probably say hello in five or 10, but I can get my way around in about two or three. Thai, Karen. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. And how many folks um, are involved in FBR? I know, you're, I know your family is deeply involved, but what is the, what is the staffing model look like the organization? What's kind of the footprint you all have in Burma and beyond? In our training camp in Burma, or in Burma, we have a staff that lives there 24-7, which is the local people there that have joined our organization. And they are our main team leaders that train the teams that go on mission with us. And in Thailand, we have some international staff that come depending on six months to a year or just uh, one month and see if they want to work with us or not, if they came from the United States or Europe or anywhere near there. And yeah. And what, what's the funding model? Uh, American donors and Dave, feel free to ch jump in as needed, but I'm, I've had to talk to Peter. But like the, in terms of funding, you, is it a traditional nonprofit? Is it, you know, mostly the, the folks in Burma helping you out? Is it Americans? How do you guys like stay afloat and make sure that you can, you know, at least feed your family and, and move the mission forward? 
our main funding source is churches in America and people who want to donate to us. We are a nonprofit organization. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I know we're getting to the end of our time and I, I want to maybe ask Dave a couple more questions related to, uh, you know, I, I can see that there might be some, some critics of what you all do, given the intensity of the conflicts you're in and kind of melding um, Christian mission with combat zones. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you face much resistance from the NGO community or even funders, or are most folks kind of in line with what you guys are, how you guys are approaching uh, your mission? Well, first, I wanted to clarify something about Pete's 50-pound rucksack. So normally... <laughs> Normally we don't, nobody cares to be on a rucksack. That's, that's not much on a climb. You know, we, like I said, he's the youngest guy to climb the Grand Teton, Rainier, climbed all over the place. And then you have big packs then because it's cold and you need ice axe crampons. But in Burma, you usually around 30, 40 pounds max. It's hot. You don't want that stuff. So how did he get 50 pounds when he's a little kid? It's like this. We were, he had a probably like a 25 pound, rucksack that's it and he i don't know if he weighed whatever he weighed he was small well under 100 pounds maybe 60 70 pounds himself 50 pounds i don't know what he weighed um and he's carrying his little 25 pounds 30 pound rucksack it's still a good load mm-hmm. but then with when we and the burma army came after us on one particular day about a week before we got this no i guess it's about oh in a week there's two days before we got this message from victor all the porters who help and carry loads, it is a cycle of villagers volunteer to carry loads. When the Burma Army came, they dropped the loads and they had ran back to take care of their families, which is normal. Yeah. So then that happened to us many times. And you end up carrying double loads, but you can't carry everything. So you go through what's most important. Well, we had a bunch of batteries and we use these big brick batteries to run our satellite, to recharge our satellite um, systems. We have solar too, but when you're, you're moving fast, the solar you can't, it's not useful. And we had these big batteries for projecting things for kids' programs, for running dental drills. And I and we were go, now things are happening really fast. So I just grabbed the whole pile of batteries that Pete take these. And that was probably 25 pounds of batteries. Wow. Yeah, the big black brick ones. Yeah. Just stuck in the truck and then forgot about it. That's my <laughs> I just forgot about it. But he's a little he didn't say anything. And off we went. And so when we did that three day mega road march, he still had those batteries until the very end. I I remember picking up his rub going, oh my gosh, Pete, yours is heavier than mine. Why didn't you give it to me? He goes, it's okay, dad, I could take it. I said, I would have carried it, man. <laughs> and um, I mean, I, car- I ended up carrying other stuff, but I could have carried that as well. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the context of that. Um, crit- critics, yes, we've, we've had critics. The most critical are people like ISIS that try to kill you. You're right. And um, that's a critic because they don't want you to help or the Burma government trying to kill us also mm. because they don't want us to help the people that they're trying to crush mm-hmm. in terms of the NGO world. We've had some people say, why are you taking your family? And then my response is we pray about every time. We don't just take them like it's a badge, mm-hmm. but we take them because we love each other. We want to be together because as we pray, we feel that this is the best for all of us. And my kids would agree. They, yeah. they get to choose too. They always choose. I'm going dad. And because people count the same. There's families in every conflict zone. And our fam- my wife and kids don't go to the front lines, but they go wherever the families are. Sometimes that close to front line is they're breaking out. And my wherever my family can comfort them and help them. So that's my answer to, to, to those questions. And I always just say, ask my kids. Yeah. And But we ask God every time. There's no fire and forget. It's every day is different. Every situation is different. There's no time to run away. There's been many missions. My kids are nowhere near me. In downtown Mosul, in some of the heaviest fighting, I didn't talk about, um, they weren't, they weren't even close to me. Mm-hmm. So, and then other critics would say, well, how can you go into these areas? You know, it's not your country. We were invited. I love this saying Lewis and Clark, I think it was Lewis family motto. Omne solum porte patria est. That means the whole world to a brave man is his country. Mm-hmm. This world really belongs to all of us. Boundaries and borders. Yeah. People get a right to make them, but that's just man-made. So when someone invites you to come, now you're the brother and you, you don't have a right to barge your way in. But when they invite you, please come and help us. We go. Other people say, well, you're, you know, some of you guys are armed. Yeah, sometimes we're not. It depends on the situation. But to be at the humanitarian, there's a humanitarian gap from the front line. Everywhere in the world is always one. humanitarian gap from the fighting back to where large or, or organizations normally help 
people who flee. That gap could be a couple miles to 100 miles. A lot of people suffer and die in those gaps. And so we stand in the gap. And I allow our team members to be armed and not. up to them. They're still not an offensive force. But if I had to defend myself a couple of times, point blank, you know, two yards, one time, one time, seven yards, one time, four yards, that's close, man. People are shooting. Mm -hmm. I'm shooting at them. They're shooting at me. Um, if I hadn't done that, I'd be dead. And why would I give my life to people out to do evil and rob my family of their dad? It wouldn't just be me because there was a whole group behind me that would have been slaughtered. And so that's a choice you've got to make. You know, I've made the choice sometimes to fight. I've made other choices where there was a big group of people, an American airstrike had made a mistake, killed the fam entire family. They were furious. I was the only American at that close. And I walked up, I got on my knees and asked for forgiveness. And I said, I've got a Glock pistol right here. I cannot, I don't have the time to ask my wife and kids if I can give your life, my life to you. And it's not worth eight of your life, but I have nothing more to do than say, I know that airstrike was a mistake. I promise you that pilot probably has kids. It mistakes happen in war. Doesn't make it right, but it's not, it's not bad intent. They're sorry. I'm sorry. If it's not good enough, take the pistol away from me. I will not fight you and shoot me. That's all I got is my life. And this Iraqi reached down and picked me up with tears in his eyes. The brother of the family was killed and said, we cannot hate you. And I cried and we held each other. And we became friends and the U.S. did help them. And we built a playground with a group called Reload Love and another guy named Rick. We built a playground as a memorial in that site. So the responses are always different. And finally, the other one, what about your faith? Um, how do you share that? Well, we, anybody can join us. I have an atheist who saved my life twice in the Battle of Mosul, still an atheist named Justin. And he, I don't know if you read about him in the book. I wrote a book called Do This for Love, Proven mm -hmm. Arranged in the Battle of Mosul. Yep. And he's in the book and he said, Dave, you don't trust me. I said, what do you mean? Because I'm not a Christian. He said, yeah, I trust you, but do you trust me? Because I believe in invisible God that I talk to with invisible radio and I make my decisions based on that and everyone's input. He goes, I trust you. Okay, then I trust you. Let's go. And mm -hmm. twice he saved my life. And the second time under heavy fire, helped me drag out wounded and I've been wounded and we're fighting for our lives. When it was over, I said, Justin, the only thing that got out you, you on that street was love. And you know God. You just call him by another name because greater love with no man than this. He laid on his life for his friends. So we share about what Jesus has done for us because it's real. And I have nothing better I can share. But whether people receive that or not, it's up to them. And I've just found that in every war zone I've been in, everybody wants to be prayed with and everyone wants to be loved. They get to choose what they're going to believe. No, there's no power on earth that humans have to convince anybody of anything. That's up to them. But we can share what helps us and who we put our faith in. Yeah. Well, I have one last question before we unfortunately have to end the conversation, but what would you, what do you want Americans to know about these conflicts of the rest of the world? You know, many of us are focused on, you know, our day-to-day -day lives, local, state, domestic politics, what's happening in America, and sometimes lose sight of what the rest of the world is engaged in. What, what are a couple of messages you want us to kind of, take away from this conversation, your experiences to help us understand what's happening in the rest of the world. That everybody counts. That you are your brother's keeper. That means you have to care for your brother. You're not your brother's controller, but we're all in this together. And we're just people. None of us, no one's perfect. No country's perfect. We all make mistakes, but to forgive each other. And then to do that which is in front of you, that which you can do. America cannot solve the problems of the world, but we have the ability where we're invited to help make conditions possible where people might solve a problem, which is a good attempt. You're gonna live your life helping people, if you can't fix their problem, but helping them have a chance to fix their problem and you have the ability to do that, do it. We don't have the ability to do everything. But for example, in Northeast Syria, we're invited in by the Kurds, help to stand against ISIS. And this is after the US found out that other alliances didn't work there, just didn't work millions, if not a billion dollars spent for really nothing. And the Kurds said, we'll do it. The Americans joined and stopped ISIS right there in Northeast Syria. And, it, it, and the place counts. People count. We're involved there. And in Burma, the people have asked, the ethnic people who are under attack for 70 years have can help us, help us, help us. There's not help. So our appeal to the U.S. government is, um, as you negotiate or talk with the Burma government, good, we should be friends. But you can send humanitarian assistance at the direct time, directly through the people under attack. Show them they count. 
And in Syria, the same, stand with the people of Syria. Um, apologize, we just abandoned the Kurds and let the Turks invade. And the, and the argument, well, the Turks are allies. They're not your ally if they're killing your allies and threatening to kill your soldiers, as they were. You stand not only for the sake of the Kurds and the Christians in Northeast Syria, you stand for the sake of our friends, the Turks. You know, it's not right to let your friend do a wrong thing, do an invasion and kill people. Ethnic cleansing, 200,000 Kurds driven out by the Turkish invasion, replaced by, by Muslim jihadis that had fled other parts of Syria. That's ethnic cleansing. Kurds and Christians out, um, Arabs in. Now, the world is big enough for all Arabs and Christians and Kurds and atheists and agnostics, but we, have, we don't share it by killing each other and forcing each other out. So I believe the U.S. made a tragic and uh, sinful mistake because we told the Kurds we'd stand with them in northeast Syria. They beat ISIS, and they did. And then we told them to pull their defenses down on the border, which they did, to, so that the Turks wouldn't be afraid. The Turks invaded anyways, but not until the Americans left. October the 9th, 2019, the Americans pulled out at, at midnight. Four in the afternoon, the Turks and the Free Syrian Army attacked. That's how it happened. Now, thank God that Americans are still in the South. They, there's still hope. But I want to encourage the Americans to apologize. We all make mistakes. America's not different. Apologize and then fix it. We can fix it. We can negotiate and still be friends with the Turks and say this is not the right way to displace 200,000 people, kill many and then move in other people and in their houses. That's, that's, just, that's just a recipe for internal conflict. Mm-hmm. And so, and then what happened too, the Russians and Syrians came in the gap. That last thing we wanted to happen, happened. And now you've got ISIS trying to do their thing, the Russians, the Syrians, the Turks, the Free Syrian Army, ISIS remnants, it's a mess and people displaced. And being here, incarcerated here right now, my heart is even more tender to those that lost their homes and can't leave these little camps. Mm-hmm. dads would cry to me saying, you know, America, we had you on our head. We had you in our eyes. We did everything we wanted. We lost 12,000 of our men and women. And could you do this to a dog in America? Just let him get killed? I don't think, is that legal? And please. And he said, I trust in God and Lindsey Graham because Senator Lindsey Graham. <laughs> so my message is this. We all make mistakes. America is yeah. not God, nor is the devil. But we're a powerful country that has done more good around the world than any country I've ever seen. I'm so grateful to be an American. I love my country. And say we're sorry and fix it. And about anything. And we don't have to solve the world's problems. We just solve the ones in front of us. And right now in America, my message to America is we're a family. You know, just like you're born in a family, you don't get to choose your mom, your dad. You don't get to choose any of it. We don't get to choose who's our fellow American. But we have to respect them and have to love them, which is only possible for me with Jesus' help. We don't have to agree at all because some things are just wrong. And so you, you argue and you legislate and you try to retain your freedoms and change things you think are wrong, but always respecting with, not necessarily agreeing with, the person who doesn't agree with you. And remembering, you're still in the same family, like it or not. So you might as well like it and figure out how to live together and compromise and, and pray for what is right and true and just and loving and of reconciliation and of freedom for everyone. Well, Dave, thank you for all that you do and for what your family does. This has been a remarkable conversation, um, and I'll post the uh, the free Burma Rangers website on the end of this podcast so folks can go there and support what y'all are doing. But uh, again, thanks to you and thanks to the listeners of A Random Walk for this remarkable conversation. Uh, Godspeed to you. I hope you guys can make it out in two days, uh, but even if it's not two days, um, I know your faith will carry you through, and we are here uh, pulling for you and praying for you every day. Um, thanks again. God bless you, brother. Cheers.